this glorious privilege, this grand opportunity to come to your house for worship. We pray, Father, now that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word. May you be glorified in every aspect, and may your people be richly blessed. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to say something this morning that the old preachers never had an opportunity to say. And here it is. I invite you to turn with me, to click, to swipe, to scroll, to point to your favorite to your favorite, uh, to, to, to the scripture, Acts chapter 5, in your copy of God's word, whatever that copy may be. Amen. They would say, turn in your Bibles. Now we can say, click, scroll a point, or swipe. Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest, Asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of your our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. I want to preach today uh, from the subject being a straight-up church in a fallen-down world, part two. Being a straight-up church in a fallen-down world. Now, just a few Sundays ago, uh, we, we shared from Acts chapter 3, concerning the healing of a lame man while at the gate of the temple. He was there begging for for money, lying there at the gate of the temple. Peter and John came along, and as typical, he, he asked them for arms, or he asked them for money. Peter's response to this lame beggar was silver and gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give you. What Peter had to give this man was worth far more than money or material possession. What Peter had to give this man was the authority invested in him through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to pronounce healing upon this lame beggar. So after obviously observing this man's desire to receive healing from the Lord, Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately the man's feet and ankle bones received strength. He leaped up, he stood, and walked into the temple with Peter and John. What a remarkable story. What a, what a great miracle. What a wonderful reminder to us of the miracle-working power of God through his son Jesus. The, the temple 
um, was a place where folk were there to to worship, and it, it was crowded that day. And, and and what a spectacle that must have been, as the man who was formerly lame and begging was now jumping and leaping and hopping and skipping and praising God with his mouth. Now, if the man known now as the man known only in the text as the lame man held on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran and joined them at the place in the temple called Solomon's Porch. That is to say, when the people got word, got wind, that the man that was once lame out in front of the temple begging, he's now up and jumping. All of the people went there to Solomon's Porch to see what was going on. Now, when they came, Peter preached Jesus to them. Uh, I find it interesting that when they came, Peter didn't take up a collection. Peter didn't try to get his name in, in lights. Peter didn't talk about how great he was, how great John was. I find it, I find it interesting and refreshing that Peter began telling them about Jesus. He was preaching to them about the life of Jesus, the, the sacrificial death of Jesus on Calvary's cross, how Jesus had died and shed his blood to save sinners. He told them about Jesus' burial, and he told them about Jesus' glorious resurrection from the dead. And then he called them to repent, that is, turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. All of these people heard Peter preaching, telling them about Jesus. And as Peter and John were both speaking to the people about Jesus and uh, about them coming to know Jesus and about the blessedness of being freed from the penalty of, of, of their sins while they were preaching and sharing and celebrating and, and worshiping, if you will, the priest, the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees, that is the religious rulers, came upon them. And being greatly disturbed that the people, uh, that Pe being greatly disturbed that Peter and John were preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead, they arrested them and put them in jail until the next day. They should have been excited. They should have been celebrating that here a man is has been healed. They should have been rejoicing that the gospel was being preached, but instead they were not. And so they put these preachers in jail. But notice the words of chapter 4, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word, what word? The word of God being preached, many of them that heard about his death, burial, his resurrection, believed. How shall they hear, believe without a preacher? How should they hear without someone preaching to them? They heard, they believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Did you get that? In spite of opposition to the work of ministry, about 5,000 men trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. 
that here's a reality. If we're going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world, we need to understand that opposition to the work of ministry will happen. If we're going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world, in a crooked, perverse world, we need to understand and perhaps even get used to the fact that opposition to the work of ministry will happen. But we are to never lose heart in the face of opposition because in God's economy, it has been proven time and time again that in God's economy, in this particular text, in God's economy, opposition, antagonism, and criticism leads to optimism. That's in God's economy. Look at verse 4 again. Peter and John are arrested for telling people about Jesus and almost 5,000 souls are saved. How much more optimistic can you be when you see God turning the wicked deeds of wicked people around and making them work out in your favor? That's how things work in God's economy. It's like being fired from your job. You're a good worker. You've done what you were supposed to do. You followed the job description uh, to the T, but being fired from your job for standing up for what is right. It happened. And it happens every day. Loss of promotion, overlooked for a promotion, fired from jobs because of standing for what is right. So it's like being fired for standing up for what you know is right. And instead of going off the deep end like your enemies would want you to, God gave you a much better job with much better working conditions. I've seen it happen. And a much better salary so you can give a much better tithe and a much better offering So the church can do much more evangelism, discipleship, and mission. Being a straight-up church in a falling-down world means we we already know that everybody is not thrilled about the ministries of the church. But we also know, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So it was the lame man was healed. There was opposition, and opposition to the apostles' ministry was growing, but so was the church. And yet in the midst of the church's explosive growth, Chapter 5 tells us the story of Ananias and Sapphira who sold a portion of land and gave part of the money to the church. You remember the story from last week? 
The problem in the transaction was deception. They attempted to deceive the apostles and the church family. They attempted to hoodwink them, fool them into thinking that they had given all their money instead of just part of the money, perhaps so that they could be elevated in name like Barnabas was. But notice the justice for their deception was swift in that they immediately fell dead after being confronted by Peter for lying to the Holy Spirit or testing the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 11 states, so great fear, get this, great fear came upon all the church. That is to say, people were fearful because they came to the reality, the realization that God was not playing. The two fresh graves within three hours got their attention to let them know that God was serious about the work and the work of his church. And deception was not a part of his plan. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That is, those who were outside, those who were on the perimeters of the church, those who had not yet made professions in faith came to understand that God was serious about his church. Now, here's the second point. If we're going to be a straight up church, in a falling down world, in a world that has lost its way, in, in a world that is decrepit, in, in a world that is, is, is sinful, in, in a world that has lost its way. If we're going to be a straight up church, uh, uh, instrument in the hand of God, uh, uh, a change agent in the hand of God to lead people to God, purity must be our priority. Purity must be our priority. Listen, if we're going to gain spiritual traction and make inroads, headway, progress in terms of leading skeptical and even cynical people to Jesus, if we're going to lead the drug addicts, if we're going to lead the alcoholics, if we're going to lead those who are living immoral lifestyles, whatever that may be, they must know that we are a straight-up people who talk the talk and walk the walk. I love how I believe it was Dr. Jeff Orge, president of Southern Baptist, uh, president of Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary at that time, said that, as Christians, our words and our walk must be congruent. We must agree with one another. You see, you see, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a falling-down world, we must be a people who talk the talk and walk the walk. Why? Because lost people, hurting people, confused people, People who look good outwardly, but whose lives are wrecks inwardly, need to hear truth 
in our conversations, and they need to see truth, honesty, holiness, righteousness manifest in all of our deliberations. They got to see it. They, they, they need to see it in, in the workplace, in the in office, in the cuticle. They, they need to see it in, in, in the neighborhood, in the community. They, they need to see it. They, they need to see it in our families. They, they need to see it in the grocery store when the cashier makes a mistake and, and we correct them and pay the money that we owe. They need to see it. They need to see it. Now, on the subject of purity being a priority, noted pastor and teacher John MacArthur wrote, the failure of churches to preach holy living and to discipline those who don't live that way allows sinners and hypocrites to remain in the church, convoluting its direction, sapping its power, robbing it of purity, and marring its testimony. That's what unholy living does for the church. Jesus demands a high level of holiness, a high level of commitment. He he demands a, a high level of commitment from those who Follow him. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. We are, in other words, a peculiar people. We are different. Street walkers and non-believers ought to look at us and say that they are straight up holy people. Reminded of story of a pastor went to visit the home of a woman who was sick. He walked up to the door and he knocked on the door and little boy, her son, looked out of the window and then he yelled to his mother at the top of his voice, Mama, God is at the door. How many people say that about us? As he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. When I was growing up as a little boy, I often thought that holiness was something that only the holiness church did. You know, they played the tambourine and they rubbed the scrub old and they would have a good, good time and they dressed a certain way and, and, and they acted a certain way and they talked a certain way. But later I found out that we are to be holy. I am to be holy regardless whether or not we are Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians. It does not matter. Holiness is a God thing. Not a denominational thing. So it is those who are straight up. Those who are straight up must be intentional about doing the right thing on every occasion and at every opportunity. You see, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, whose mode of operation was characterized by premeditated evil, and contemplated wickedness, 
the straight up church individually, that is us as individual believers and as a group, that is us as missionary Good Hope Baptist Church and the church worldwide will remain diligent and deliberate about following the command of Jesus. If we're straight up, we'll be diligent. We will be deliberate about following the command of Jesus in Matthew 5, 16. Says, let your light so shine. Let your holiness so shine. Let your righteousness so shine that men, women, boys, girls, the bank teller, the cashier, those that we deal with, all of them will see our good works, not glorify us, Glorify our Father in heaven. Third, if we're going to be a straight-up church in a fallen-down world, we must boldly, unapologetically, and unashamedly proclaim the name of Jesus. Notice as the drama unfolds in Acts 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, uh, the text tells us that many signs and wonders were done among the people and that multitudes of men and women were joined in the church. In fact, the ministry of the apostles was so powerful that sick people were being brought out on beds and couches so that at least the shadow of Peter as he passed by might fall on them. Verse 16 recounts that also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people, those tormented by unclean, tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Don't you just love that when the healing of God takes place? They, they were all healed. It didn't say that some of them were not healed because they didn't have enough faith. It said that they were all healed. And as a result of their successful ministry, the successful ministry of Peter and John and the apostles, the high priests and the Sadducees who were filled with indignation, laid their hands on the apostles again and put them in common prison. But get this. But at night, I like that. At night, there was another instance, and hopefully we'll get that to later, where, where, where Peter and John were freed at, at night. The, they were singing songs at night. It reminds me of the, the, the uh, uh, songs in the night. But at night, that is, during, during the, the dark times, during the despairing times, during the depressing times, during the times of anxiety and times of uncertainty, but at night, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, opened the prison doors and brought them out. Those of us who are living straight up lives in a fallen world understand that, that God has a way of bringing us out. Even out of the darkest night, the most difficult times, the most trying situation, he has a way of bringing us out. 
to open those prison doors and brought them out, telling them now, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. In other words, this messenger of the Lord said, go back to the same place where you got in trouble before and continue to do the same thing you were doing. Don't cower. Don't back down. Don't back away, but go back. Don't run away. Don't look for a safe place. Haven, don't look for a hiding place. Go back to the temple and speak to the people all the words of life because, of course, they need to hear it. When the high priest, the council, and the elders sent to have the apostles brought before them, they discovered that the men were free. And not only were they free, They were standing in the temple and teaching the people about Jesus. So it was the captain and his officers, the text tells us, brought the apostles before the council where the high priest asked them in verse 28, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name. In other words, what part of not do you not understand? This is not rocket science. In our economy, this is just good down-home common sense. For we have the power, we have the authority to lock you up again. And not only that, do you harm. So he said, did we not strictly command you? We didn't ask you. We didn't suggest that you. We didn't ask you to consider it or to think about it. We commanded you. That was in order not to teach in this name. Isn't it interesting that they were so full of anger and indignation and jealousy and wrath and hateful hatred towards Jesus that they would not even mention his name. They didn't say, don't you dare teach in the name of Jesus. They simply said his name. Like a lot of people today, instead of closing their prayers in the name of Jesus, they say his name. And look, they said, You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and attend to bring this man's blood on us. Spiritual amnesia. Because right before in the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus was crucified, and they asked, let Barabbas go. And they said, let this man's blood be on us. And on our children. And now they're saying, accusing Peter John for intending to bring this man's blood on us. Well, was that not what you asked for? Wickedness is like a dog chasing his tail in it. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, and I might add they answered and said it, Boldly, we ought to obey God rather than man. Characteristic of the straight-up church, we ought to obey God 
rather than man. In chapter 4, verse 18, they were commanded not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. In verse 19, they said to their persecutors, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. They said that back in chapter 4. Verse 24, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, these 12 men, as, as well as the men and women who have been radically transformed by the power of God, were not about to give up preaching, teaching, singing, praying, and testifying in the name of Jesus. No matter how offensive his name was, it would forever remain on their lips Irregardless of society, how they felt about it, who was against it, they were not about to give up preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. So here's a truism. We are living in a culture, in a society, and even in a world today where the name of Jesus is becoming more and more offensive every day. There was a time when you could call his name. You could call his name and it was celebrated, but we're living in a day where the name of Jesus is becoming more and more offensive. It's going to get worse. Last week, my wife and I attended three graduations, high school and college. The graduations were orderly, and they were meaningful, and they did what they were intended to do, and that was to confer degrees upon the well-deserving graduates. We were honored to be there to witness Good Hopians, some of them we knew before they were born. It was a great honor. But I noticed something this year in particular. Not one time in one prayer did I hear the name of Jesus mentioned. Not once. Not one time did I hear one student when they thank their mothers, thank their fathers, thank their friends, thank their instructors. Not one time did I hear one thank you, Jesus. Now I understand what's going on. I I, I know what's going on. I, I know I I know I know what's going on. But but here but 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 here is the issue. The name of Jesus is becoming more and more offensive. Towards the closing of my career as an Air Force chaplain, I was asked to pray at the Bitburg American High School in Germany in 1996 baccalaureate service. I got the phone call, and it was a great honor to me for a couple of reasons. One, it was a great honor because our son, Linnell Jr., was a part of that class. What a great honor it would have been to, to stand there and pray God's blessings over this class. It was also a great honor because, in the second place, my son's classmates 
thought enough of him to want to invite his dad to pray. The seniors, the, the classmate, that decision, the, the, the instructors, the faculty didn't make that decision. But, but I was honored because my son's classmates in Germany thought enough of him to want his dad, one of five or six chaplains on the base, to pray. Well, then I received another telephone call. And it was a matter of fact call because the, the high-ranking a non-commissioned officer on the other end of the phone said, Chaplain, you know, they want you to come and pray, but there's just one thing. You guessed it. We don't want you to pray in the, in, in the name of Jesus. Well, needless to say, I declined the invitation. And the choice for me was easy. It's personal. Other chaplains and other people have to make their own decisions. I'm talking about my personal choice. It, this belonged to me. The choice was easy because it was a matter of not denying the marvelous, matchless, miracle-working name of Jesus at that baccalaureate service. I couldn't do it. I could not stand there and ask God's blessings without praying in the name of Jesus. I know, I know, I know people have differences of opinion, and I, I knew that they had students from other backgrounds, non-believers and other religious traditions, but when you ask me as a chaplain, a Christian, to pray, I pray in the name of Jesus. It was a matter of foregoing a personal honor or, deny, or denying the marvelous, matchless, miracle-working name of Jesus who had lovingly and graciously and mercifully suffered and bled and died to save me from my sins, who had blessed me and was still blessing me exceedingly, abundantly above all I could ever ask or imagine. All because of his powerful name, I could not deny him. So as I close, may God help us. As Pastor Harris prayed in these perilous times, may God help us in days when everybody does what seems right in their own eyes, where authority is eroding and morals and values and judo-Christian morals and values and ethics are fading away fast. May God help us in this place and around the world. May God help us be a straight-up church in a falling down world.